0: It is my distinct pleasure to welcome Michael Schellenberger to today's show. A reminder that we have a lot of very interesting guests coming up, including uh, Senator Ron Johnson uh, tomorrow, Naomi Wolf on Thursday, Molly Kingsley on Friday, Dave Rubin on Monday. So a lot coming up. Friday and Monday will be, let's see, Friday will be 11 a.m. and Monday will be at 12 noon, so keep an eye on that. Today, though, uh, Michael Schellenberger is such a privilege. He is one of the clearest thinkers I know. The book, of course, is San Francisco, where he chronicles the uh, the insane policies that result in, uh, literally in this state, dozens of deaths on a daily basis, where people are allowed to remain sick on our streets without any medical care, proper medical care. Uh, he also has a book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmist Hurts Us All. We'll talk to Michael Schellenberger. If with any luck, I'll have a chance to maybe take a couple questions off of um, Twitter spaces if I don't get too enraptured in my own questioning. I'll be watching you guys on the restream and, of course, over at the Rumble Rants. So let's get on with it. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. A psychopath started this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous Welcome, everybody. As I said, Michael Schellenberger in just a second. uh, We are watching you on the Twitter spaces where you are listening to us and of course I'm watching your comments on the restream. It's hard to get into, you know, to catch every comment there, guys. I'm doing the best I can Uh, and Susan tends to... YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter. That's right. We are all over the place. That's where the restream shows up and uh, Susan tends to watch the Rumble Rants and uh, we are seeing some of our I watch
1: it all. I see everything.
0: So, and if we do get a call, if you do get, uh, raise your hand to be uh, speaking with uh, Michael on the restream. uh, Again, you get called up and you are agreeing by coming up there to uh, be willing to stream down on all these different platforms we are on. As well, you got to remember to unmute your microphone when you get there. Uh, I already gave uh, some of the specifics on Michael. I want to get into a lot more with him here in person. So without any further delay, Michael Schellenberger. Nat Abbott, go Hey, Drew,
2: good to be with you.
0: Michael, great to be with you as well. So good to see you, man. Um, do you remember our uh, hoofing around... Um, uh, Okay, thank you. That we were uh, trolling around uh, Skid Row in Los Angeles a couple of years ago?
2: Absolutely, I mean, look, I owe you a lot. You helped me get on the right path very early on. You know, you had me on your radio show to talk about the Amazon. And then I was like, you know, what's going on with the homeless problem? And, and you you kind of gave me the basic story, which I basically agree with and, and wrote a whole book about. So um, yeah, we go back, at least I think there must've been 20, uh thousand nineteen. 2019. So yeah. It's Crazy. been a long and I don't Crazy. know. I don't think I think it's probably gotten worse since then. But yeah, for sure. Then you you and I met in LA and yeah. we went around Skid Row and Yeah,
0: it's it's not it's not gotten better. I mean I I you know the the the, the reason this happened is the dismantling of the state healthcare system, but the reason it's not getting solved is the insane laws that we have in California that literally prevent us from treating people with brain disorders other than dementia. Other than dementia, for some reason, that brain disease is carved out. We can treat that. In fact, we're obliged to treat that one. If we don't treat that one, we're guilty of elder abuse, but okay, patient abuse. Um, Schizophrenic with the exact same symptom profile, they're leading their best life. You don't, can't go near them. You can't dare tell them to do anything, even though they're on the streets and dying at an extraordinary rate. Uh, and and then again, you know, you're allowed to uh, shoot drugs and steal to support your habit and all that good stuff. And my patients, when they find that out, they come. <laughs> they'll be here. I assure you, they'll be they'll be right over. And uh, they're dying at the rate of about seven a day just in L.A. County alone. So it's just it's literally an open air hospital without walls. And without doctors and nurses. That's literally what we have here.
2: And increasingly dangerous, addictive, intoxicating, and deadly drugs at the center of it. Like that is a far, and, and no interventions whatsoever, basically a process. And in San Francisco, I describe really the process of reducing any consequences for intoxication in public had been declining since after World War II. But we now, you know, we had. Um, I had a former police officer who was in charge of the mental health program at the San Francisco Police Department tell me that, you know, she's like, in the old days, if you were a meth head, you would get arrested occasionally and you'd have to go and um, dry out in the jail. But when they got rid of all consequences for even including breaking the law in multiple ways, open air drug use, public camping, illegal camping, public defecation, when they got rid of all the enforcement of those laws then people never even had a break from this hardcore addiction. I mean, you know, meth, we talk about it often. I think we focus on the fentanyl because it's so deadly. But, you know, meth is a big part of what's driving the, as you know, the uh, high, the big increases of psychotic behavior. You know, just on Twitter yesterday, a woman describes, she said, we've been warning the police for months about the homeless encampment outside my child's school. Today, a man was swinging a machete and screaming psychotically at the entrance and had to be arrested, but it took the police officers 35 minutes to get there after they called the 911 line. So I mean, it's a picture of, I mean, I was having a debate the other day about which is worse, LA or San Francisco. Um, It's a bit of where you go and and whatnot, but both cities are absolutely in a state of crisis and uh, disorder and lawlessness to a large extent.
0: Yeah, and Sam Quinonius wrote a book called The Least of Us where he chronicles how the the new meth, the, the PCP, um, what's it called, the shoot PSP or something, which is essentially made uh, in a garage rather than uh, out of the old products, uh, causing indu- inducing psychosis much more quickly. And the other thing we're going to see soon is a rapid increase in meth-related deaths because meth is a funny drug. It makes you psychotic pretty quickly, but it does not kill you quickly. And when it starts killing people, it's going to be, that's when the asymptote's going to go, the, the delta is going to go very positive. And uh, yes. we're going to see just extraordinary numbers of death. Just Because stri- the death from meth is kind of a protean thing. It's heart disease, it's stroke, it's infections, it's vascular, it's all kinds of things. It's not it's not like fentanyl where you stop breathing. It's not one thing. It's a sort of a protean thing that builds up over time. P2P, P2P thank you, uh, Caleb. P2P meth. Uh, But I want to know more about your evolution, you know, how you sort of change your point of views and why you think people today seem incapable of doing that. I, I feel like we are in this weird ideological gridlock. And moreover, I would posit that whenever ideology rules a group or policies, I mean, history is replete over and again with the amount of harm that gets done to humans when ideology, rather than reality, when a, you know a scientific sort of a you know, pragmatic assessment of reality and then good evidence-based application of ideas to help with that, instead it's it's up in our head somewhere in subjectivity and political and ideological, and and people are harmed. How did you shift, and why are we so stuck?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with this question, um, as, as I know you are, uh, Drew, and spent a lot of time thinking about it. I do have this benefit of having changed my mind on a few big issues, So, and I have the memory of my previous views, and so I can, I can spend some time going back and, and thinking about how I thought about things in the past. I think that, I mean, first, I think, the, the, you know, it's, all, it's different on homelessness and the environment, so we're doing, we're doing homelessness. I was going to observe, too, that you know, you, as a psychiatrist, you already were, you already knew that there was an addiction crisis. And so I think it was easier for you to see that on the streets than a lot of people. I also, because I had three friends from high school that became homeless drug addicts, two are dead. My aunt had schizophrenia and she lived with pretty good outcomes in a group home in Denver. And I had been exposed to her psycho- her psychosis as a as a boy and had parents that very um, that explained it very well to me. And so for me, it was more familiar. And I also talked to a lot of people on the streets just as a kind of this is kind of part of my personality. Um, I think those things all helped. But even I, like the first piece I wrote for Forbes, I wrote that we should, you know, we need to build a lot of housing to deal with the homeless crisis And and part of that is because like most Californians, I think we do need more housing. <laughs> and so it's easy yeah. to kind of go, well, we need more housing, and therefore that would solve homelessness. And then I think you and other people were kind of like, you know, this is really about addiction and mental illness. And I was kind of like, oh, right. Like just the the framing of it, I hate that word, but the priming is actually a better, more accurate word. Just kind of getting your head, getting you uh, uh, kind of brainwashed is a way to say it, but sort of getting you mentally prepared to think of it as a housing issue then leads you to see it as a housing issue. So I think that's part of it. you know, me personally, I'm not a great example of how how to get other people to change their minds necessarily because my temperament is—I dis- have i dis- am high. I would be high on what you call what psychologists or psychiatrists call uh, disagreeableness as a personality trait. Um, you know, and I—I I might have been a little—I defi- think I've, I've suffered a bit from some of it, but you know, just sort of being like the guy at the party that goes, "I don't know, that doesn't sound right about everything," you know, so. For me, it's not particularly, I think most people, it's not, a, it's not often, it's not a way to necessarily like, you know, make people like you as a personality trait, but it has been essential to sort of being a journalist and to some extent being an activist too. So I would say those were, those were both factors in it.
0: So I, I wanna push back a little bit on sort of characterizing what I do. I'm I actually an addictionologist internist. So I come from the medical perspective on addiction treatment, I, and I spent 35 years working at a psychiatric hospital. And my reason for understanding what's going on in the streets is not so much that I knew we were in a pandemic of opiates and whatnot, Those are my patients. I know what to do for those people. I'm like a surgeon walking around looking at people with a a surgical problem that I could correct and no one will let me do it. Uh, And the patients are just dying hand over fist. And in fact, no doctors are allowed to come near, no nurses are allowed to come near. And it just, it makes me crazy. It's the most insane thing I've ever seen. So it, it wasn't just that I knew we had a big problem in this country. I know how to deal with it. I know what to. Do. I know that those right. this can be better. I, I know, and, yes. and so it's just it's a, a preoccupying. Um, the other thing yeah. uh, is the 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 disagreeableness. I, I want to kind of drill into that a little bit. So uh, one of the frequent reproducible observations about men and women is on the spectrum of agreeableness and disagreeableness. And women tend to be more on the agreeable side, and men tend to yeah. be more on the disagreeable side, right? Is, is right. there anything about that phenomenon uh, uh, that's preventing us from seeing the truth, so to speak? I mean, is it that people that are agreeable don't want to push back, and people that are disagreeable people don't want to listen to? I mean, is there, is there something there that strategically we could address to help people see the truth?
2: Yeah, well, this is such an interesting question. I mean, I think the other, uh, I'll add one other part of it. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons why we don't want to change our minds about things. There's, and, but one of them is that we, we know that it's dopamine reinforcing now to be, to be consuming information that reinforces our preexisting beliefs. And it's probably, I think it's dopamine depleting to uh, discover that you're wrong. So it's almost against your kind of physical instincts. Speaking of addiction, you, people are sort of addicted to their ideologies and to having their ideologies reinforced. It's a kind of high to um, discover that you're correct. And it's kind of a downer to discover that you're wrong. Um, obviously, you know, people do change their minds and often in the ways that they change their minds changes the world, right? Suddenly everybody decided that they didn't want the Berlin Wall and the Berlin Wall was down. You know, and it wasn't like, you know, it's kind of some people at the top making decisions, but really it was like people being like, we don't want this anymore and we're going to actually be brave enough to take it down. So, so the good news is that we do know that people do change their minds and also that you don't need, like, you don't need everybody. In fact, you only need a small number of people to really start changing their minds. You know, I think broader, it's sort of built and what that means often is building networks of support for this new, this new truth, you know, or a new, that's what a social movement is. So we've now created California Peace Coalition to advocate for more sane policies, ones that you would totally agree with. And also now the North America Recovers.org. that's the website, and it's a coalition of groups that understand that we're in a serious addiction crisis and that addiction is a highly treatable psychiatric disorder that can be treated and people can have great life outcomes. And we're starting to yep. do more advocacy. We just uh, urge the president not to do supervised drug consumption sites, and instead to create a recovery-based system of addiction care. So, I think building that movement is essential because then it gives people some safety in numbers as well to to express the to recognize the reality on the ground, which is that you know we're in an addiction crisis, and that's driving what we call homelessness.
0: Yeah, it, it is. It is so uh, heartbreaking to me. And, and there, there, and I'm sure you're aware there's not one way to do this. And people are very complicated. And there's multiple sort of interventions, But we have lots of options these days. We have lots of things we can do to help people. You know, back to the dementia versus schizophrenia symptom profile that I find so bizarre. So we are required to jump in on a demented patient who's disorganized and aggressive and psychotic. And we are prevented from going in and doing the same for a schizophrenic with the same symptom profile and the schizophrenic if we go in early can end up by like your family member they can they can be restored they can be they can live a meaningful life if you let it yes. go too long they are destroyed you can't get them back the dementia patient no matter what you do that person is going to progress. You can't interfere. You can help them be safe, but that is going to progress. But schizophrenia, you can affect, if you get in and treat it, not allowed, not allowed to. Heartbreaking.
2: Well, I think it's such an interesting distinction, uh, Drew. I totally agree with you. And I actually raised it. And there's a little passage in San Francisco where I'm arguing with the ACLU attorney on this very issue? Why is there? Why do you distinguish between them? And I mean, it was notable that she was like, basically saying that she didn't want to mandate care for the person with dementia. That was the first thing she said, which Mm. is just bonkers. It shows Mm. you how radical Mm. that organization really is and how out of touch with the medicine they are. And then she also really came back to this issue, which really underscores, I think the underlying problem, which is that for the radical progressive left, which is in control in California, they view, they genuinely view everybody with a mental illness or a psychiatric disorder, including addiction, as a victim, unless perhaps you're a rich white male, in which case you're excluded from the category of victim. But once you're put in the category of victim, the way that the logic works, the internal logic, is that to victims, everything should be given and nothing required, not even obeying the law. And so that's how they end up getting rid of all these things that in the past would have been moments for intervention in response to Christ for help from people who, you know, we just ran a piece on our website about a guy, Skid Row, who is describing trying to find a vein to punch a needle into because his, his, his body was so wrecked by having poked it so many times to inject heroin. And that's obviously, we know that's the situation where people are injecting these needles. In, now they're smoking more, but injecting needles in places because they've ruined So they end up doing things. This character that, we, that I'm describing, he just ended up assaulting another homeless person. You have to understand these as cries for help. And so when you say, oh, no, it's okay. We're not going to respond in the name of compassion. It's actually the cruelest most counterproductive oh my God. and destructive it's, it's, thing
0: it's beyond it's the it's disgustingly cruel and it, no other country on earth treats human beings like this with brain disorders and and what is it that somebody with a brain disorder is a victim of like what's a schizophrenia what's a bipolar well then it gets even more
2: crazy this shows how the essential craziness of woke ideology is because it itself is a crazy i would say you know psychotic like ideology where you're actually confusing here you are dealing with someone that's really sick with addiction or mm. and maybe other psychiatric yeah. disorders and instead sure. of seeing them for who they are you're imposing I'm this this mentality on them you're imposing this identity yeah. on them that's not re- not real and that's almost that's itself a kind of crazy psychosis you know it's like instead of being like hey this person is addicted to fentanyl and meth and they need to go into rehab and they need treatment and they need recovery instead of saying that we say mm well, this person is a victim of structural, historical racism and white supremacy, and they need an apartment. It's both those things.
0: Those two things may also be true. <laughs> they may also be true. Yeah, but sure. But if you don't treat right. the brain disease, you're going to have a dead person, a destroyed person, period, end. Uh, so, and they leave out the part. The part that gets me is that addiction is a progressive illness. It progresses. And so their thing is, well, we'll just give them the drugs. Yeah, even if I inject the patient, he or she will progress. It's a progressive illness that ends in demise. And with opiates and meth, that's where it goes. With alcohol, it can kind of go, cannabis and kind of wax and wane. But with the heavier stuff, it ends in death and that's it. Um, yeah. And so you're committing them. That, to me, is a form of manslaughter. I don't know. what What else do you call it? allowing knowing that that person's going to die and just allowing it to happen I, I it's mind-boggling to me but but take me back to by the way in terms of changing one's mind are you familiar with dave McCraney and his podcast no. you are not so smart you you no. ought to you ought to listen to his that series cuz he's he is he's preoccupied with this question how do you get people to change their mind and he's interviewed hmm. all the people all the psychologists the, you know dunning and kruger and you know all the all the names you've heard before that are that have uh, sort of broken through the models of cognitive dissonance and and how do you get you know and, and the uh, backlash effect you know this what do they call it the backfire effect where you you get somebody like you take an right. anti-vaxxer and you convince them that the measles vaccine is good but then that backfires because then they double down everywhere else and so that's what right. tends to happen with people and so he he's preoccupied with how you get people to change and it is um, daunting it's it's not as simple as uh, dopamine reinforcement I assure you uh, yeah. Though, Though our brain is set up in such a way that the dopamine system... See, um, people misuse the dopamine system. You, you don't feel anything when you have a dopamine surge other than the desire to do that again. It's the do-it-again part of the system, not the feel-good part of the system. So there's a, there's, a, there's a liking and a wanting system in the brain. And this is the wanting system, essentially. You want to do that again. Um, and you, you, and craving is even separate from the wanting. So there's, you know, there's liking, wanting and craving all different, all different. Uh Uh But, you know, people have sort of people have uh, taken the dopamine thing and distilled it down to the surge you get when you like something. But that's actually the wanting part of the brain that dopamine is responsible for. And you don't feel anything except, hey, do that again. You might even not not be aware of do that again. You might just be thinking about, uh, hey, I sure did like Joe. Joe's a nice guy. I got to see Joe. Who's Joe? Isn't he the guy you get your meth from? Yeah, yeah, but I just liked him. I need to be around Joe. That's I just like Joe. That's wow. how our, our brain tricks us into this thing, how it, how it works. And, yeah. you know, Plato was onto this years ago. He talked about the the cognitive conscious brain being, you know, a monkey riding an elephant or a charioteer being pulled along by horses. And, and that's really how our brain works. But you know i people don't seem to be aware of that today number one and then number two th- what you were talking about in terms of superimposing a structure on somebody else that's where i started this which we just i call that ideology you're you're in ideas you're not in reality and i whether it's mao or stalin or anybody you 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 know just, extreme extreme political movements that have ended in disaster, they've always had ideology at their bases and done yes. untoward harm to humans. How do we get that through to people?
3: Mm.
2: Wow, um I mean, there's a lot there right? i mean I was hoping you were going to say more about what the um what they they found the solutions were. I mean, I think one thing that's <laughs> been that I mean one thing I've found it's, that, it's, because you know I've, no go ahead. I was going to say, when you
0: listen to the podcast series, you're going to be kind of disappointed because he, it, it sort of, after hours and hours of listening, you'll realize it's hard. It's almost impossible. Uh, you have to do way more than argue. You have to sort of share worldviews and get a way of sort of understanding one another and accepting what the other person is experiencing and seeing and see if you can kind of together shift into something. It's it's therapy. It's the way psychotherapy is done, right? We do psychotherapy, you get in, you share a common sort of experience and then the therapist skillfully brings the patient in a certain direction. That's what, that's how I think of it.
2: I think that's helpful. I mean, I think, um, You know, I've been um, really interested in this. Um, I just got, in fact, I'm working on multiple uh, questions around it. I mean, I think one thing for sure, what you just said, so, you know, the San Francisco, of course, it came out October, uh, uh, 2021. So it's been out for a year and, and four months. And I think the one thing that was always important to do to prevent people from projecting onto me particular ideas that maybe they themselves feared they had in themselves, namely projecting onto me somehow that I don't care about people on the streets or that I, um, you know, just, uh, you know, am sort of a, a cleanliness fanatic and I just worried about the streets being clean, that I don't really care about the people. So I would always say, you know, and you do this too, we both do it, to kind of be like, look, we care about the folks on the street. We're worried about them. They're being harmed. They're being mistreated. I have family members, I have friends. I think that always helps because it's a little bit harder than to just be like, you just hate poor people or you just wanna put people right. in jail. So that's right. important and that's a, that's a connection on a common value. I also think that the other one, it's always specific to the issue you know at hand. If we talk about you know, nuclear power or something, you know, it would be different. But I think in this case, it's expressing that concern for those people I think it's also on the actual kind of cognition, you know, and by the way, I think broadly, we're trying to get people out of, you know, what Daniel Kahneman called, you know, type one versus type two thinking. In other words, you're trying to get people into slow thinking rather than into just knee-jerk, fast thinking. So slow thinking is aided, of course, by media like this, where we have some time to talk and not just TV sound bites. But I think the one heuristic, so to speak, the one kind of mental shortcut that people have that I think is really healthy that I would always bring up is just that you don't wanna enable addiction. You don't wanna enable self-destructive behaviors. There's a version of that which sort of says, you know, everything can be done in excess and that includes compassion. You can, you know, that you can just be too compassionate and not have any boundaries. And not set any rules. And also that people do, you know, that this thing of do people need to hit bottom? Um, well, they do, but that doesn't mean that you that you can't raise the bottom or lower the bottom. If right. you lower the bottom, That's right. you, you you may kill people. If you raise the bottom, then you might get them help much earlier. This idea mm-hmm. that you have to wait for people to hit bottom, and then meanwhile you're lowering the bottom, which is what's going on in San yeah. Francisco and LA. I think that resonates. So, you know, I mean, Drew, honestly, um, when you look at the public opinion polling, it's overwhelmingly to stage an intervention. It's like 75 percent of voters in San Francisco, and I'm sure the numbers are close to identical in Los Angeles, say that people that are breaking the law, living on the street, using drugs, camping illegally, whatever, should be mandated care. And that is a very strong thing. So one of the questions is not just how do we change ordinary people? It's like how do you engage in the politics when you have basically a minority with a very radical view of addiction which is basically pretty radical enablement how do you how do we overcome that the power of that minority and why do they exercise such power given that their views are pretty unpopular when you actually yeah. take them to voters
0: yeah i, I look it's We've been through so many waves of stupidity with the opiate epidemic, with COVID, with this. I, I, when are people going to stand up? And and it's weird how we've sort of been, um, how passive we've been, and how people don't understand they they can stand up and say no, and this isn't okay, and we have to do something. I I, I don't understand. I don't understand why the city council or the or the LA Board of Supervisors lo- listens to the so-called activists who are. Who are they? Have they ever treated a single addict? Have they ever treated a psychiatric patient? Are these people that know something special? Why do they listen to them? Why? What are you doing? Well, you should stand up to people with unreasonable ideas that are harming other people. And by the way, this um, caring versus not caring is really a kind of a core issue. I kind of want to talk a little bit more about that because, you know, one group of the the people that I deal with, that claim to care so much, so much usually have a certain amount of aggression of their own that they're kind of afraid of. And it's like, yes. yeah, I I care too. And and don't 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 project all your aggression and your negativity and your for whatever shameful feelings you have. I I'm willing to overlook all of that. No problem. I know you care. That's right. You do yes. care. And so do I. But you don't you don't have magic. You don't have a magic sort of um uh uh, uh, sort of uh, attachment to it that's above and above all other human beings that raises your you as some sort of lofty being. This is not no. This is bullshit. This is all bullshit. You care, I care, and there's ways to solve problems. And that's that. Let me um, let me do this, Michael. Let me take a little break, uh, and then when we come back, do you mind taking a few calls? I think people have their hands up or interesting. Love to. Talking. Yeah. You I'm here for, for the. I'm here right, for. I'm here do for that. the whole
2: time. I'm here to enjoy it. Yeah. I love it.
0: All right. Let's get Michael
2: Schellenberg, everybody. Be right back.
0: Not sure how to say I love you this Valentine's Day? Well, nothing says I love you more than a few minutes of relaxation and Genucel Skincare does just that. Gives you the luxury gift of feeling like you spent the entire day in the spa all while, in fact, in the comfort of your own home. Susan loves to feel pampered and special, especially on Valentine's Day. So why not relax with a detoxifying mask and feel amazing after only one use?
4: I know I'm a snob about the products I use on my face. Everybody knows it. Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. Retinols, vitamin C cream, under eye cream, night creams. Drops.
2: And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at GenuCell.com. I've fallen in love with this product at a fraction of the price. I've been using GenuCell for six months now and I'm very impressed.
0: GenuCell's mask works wonders by pulling out all of your imperfections to make you feel refreshed and looking like you just stepped out of a facial appointment. Order the Dr. Drew package today and try this amazing mask for free. That's right, every single Dr. Drew and Susan package includes a free mask to celebrate you and your loved one on this Valentine's Day. Go to GenuCell.com Drew and enter code Drew for an extra 10% off your entire purchase. Plus, all orders are upgraded to priority shipping for free. That's that's genucel.com slash Drew, G E N U C E L dot com slash D R E W. My guest is Philip Patrick. He is a precious metal specialist, trains at University of Redlands. He has spent years as a wealth manager at Citigroup, and his current position is with Birch Gold Group. So, gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven, particularly in times of great turmoil. Uh, much like our present moment, I imagine.
1: Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has has always been about wealth preservation, right? Gold has... It always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you'd like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, You know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble. These times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are different the solution needs to be different as well so i encourage everyone to get informed and we have a lot of good information here to help your listeners
0: just a reminder i am not a financial advisor and i do not give out financial advice nor investing advice birch gold has an a plus rating with the better business bureau countless five-star reviews and thousands of satisfied customers check them out now visit birchgold.com slash drew and secure your future with gold do it now and we are back with Michael Schellenberger. We're going to take some calls. Uh, before we do, though, I just want to circle back one more time with Michael, and and ask sort of what what's preoccupying you these days. What what, what are your you know? I let me put it this way: when you when I first met you, or that I first met you in person, you were working with the moms against. Fentanyl overdose, I forget what the group was called. And you had such clarity, you were like, we're going to get this and here's what's happening and here's how we're going to do it. It was, it was so reassuring to me, I was like, oh my God, somebody knows what they're doing is really in the fight. What, what do you, where, where is What is that spot now for you? What, what is the fight you're fighting that you can see that you can have a significant impact?
2: Yeah, I mean, on the, on this issue, it's this NorthAmericaRecovers dot uh, org. It's a new coalition. It's about twenty organizations from around the United States and Canada. We have people everywhere from Denver to Harlem to Washington D C, Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles. All came together earlier this year to basically embrace this recovery oriented ag- uh, approach to addiction, where that includes an intervention. You know. Um, and and also treatment, but really intervention, treatment, recovery. And you know, the first thing is to stop this enabling of addiction that they are proposing to do. I mean, the, the main agenda is just to create supervised drug sites where people can use drugs. We're not we're not necessarily against that in every instance, but it should not be put in cities that don't have a proper scientific recovery based approach to addiction. So that's what we're demanding. And yeah. Um, we're yeah. so excited because it's just got groups from around the country. But, and I think the other thing, you know, is just what we're trying to expose with our, you know, my Substack publication is called uh, public. I'm doing it now with my colleague Leighton Woodhouse and we're just trying to expose, I think a lot of the psychopathologies that you were just describing, the grandiosity, the narcissism, the psychopathy, even the miss, you know, in the, in the form of just treating people on the streets as though they're kind of pawns to advance a. A progressive agenda on other issues like housing which might be okay but you should not be using people in that way and you know so i find myself more drawn to questions of yeah just what you're asking what is the psychology why does so much of this seem genuinely crazy why do the people involved in this seem like they're suffering from narcissism histrionic personality disorder you know why is there such a kind of um ends justify the means orientation when liberals used to be more known for expressing tolerance and open-mindedness and free debate why is there this kind of totalitarian turn on the left i think these are super important questions so you can see with my work it's always been on the one hand i'm very practical i want to have a have a direct you know medical response and on the other hand i'm very interested in kind of the politics and the ideology of why people Are not doing what every other developed country in the world thinks is the obvious thing to do with 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 folks suffering from addiction,
0: with sick people. Yeah, and uh, again, the other the corollary to what you're describing in terms of what people with these ideologies, so-called, are 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 stuck with is what's wrong with the rest of us? Why why didn't we stand up? Why aren't we saying no? Why aren't we getting? Why aren't we? I, I don't know. It's 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 and you know I was around in the '70s when there was a big uh, concern about apathy. Everyone's apathetic. There was kind of a general depression then, I would say. We all sort of collectively were depressed uh, when I look back on it. That's not what I see right now. What, what I see now is more fear, I guess. Fear of being judged, fear of being canceled, fear of being seen as a MAGA, fear of yeah. being seen as a Trump. For all these things, you, f- if you if you feel like if you speak up a little bit against the these insane ideas, you're somehow, whoa, you're immediately way over here. And, of course, that's what borderlines and narcissists do. It's all yep. good, all bad, all black, all white. That's in, yes. the, that's in the narcissistic disorders. So then how do you deal with that? You know how we used to do it deal with it in the hospital? Show of force. Show of force. There must be a unified front, and seriously, stop it. You have to have a show of force and, and then they're wounded and they're, Oh, I, I was just trying to help. I just was, you know, was a poor me. It's like, uh, yes, I know you're trying to help. So are we stop it now, stop it. Uh, but we're not, we're seem to be absolutely paralyzed where we can't seem to do that. And we've got to, we ha- we have to.
2: That's such an interesting, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, um you have to I just read this incredible book I'm obsessed with I'm going to write about it about the study of how totalitarianism takes root in the culture and in institutions and how the narcissists and the psychopaths kind of become leaders of these mobs mm-hmm. that and he's talking mm-hmm. about fascism and communism but obviously it has a lot of resonances with what we see happening with this kind of dogmatic woke culture, getting professors fired for, for reasons they should not be fired for or being uh, deprived of funding and all sorts of other things. And what he says is exactly what you're saying, Drew, he says, it's not enough to condemn the behaviors morally, it's not enough to be like, that's bad, you actually have to describe this, the, the psychopathology of it. You have to do what you just said, which is to say, you know, when you start splitting the world into good versus evil, black versus white, everybody's against you or they're with you. That's a that's a characteristic of narcissism, you know, or the ways 100%. in which you're sort of don't seem to care about the people that you're talking about. 3000 black people, an increase of 3000 black people were killed after Black Lives Matter protests in large measure, not entirely, but in large measure because of the, the pullback of police because of the defunding and demoralization of the police. That's not showing empathy for people. And that suggests a kind of psychopathic view that people are just tools for you to to get your power. So actually describing these as uh, psychopathologies, I think is important. You have to be careful because of course, you don't want to just be like, oh, you're crazy or something you can, but you can just, dis- when you describe these behaviors in the way that I'm trying to do it, where you're not actually Picking on a person, for example, but you're like, look, you you yeah. know what I'm talking about. I mean, that's the thing is when you tell people, you know what I'm describing, and people go, oh yeah, I know. Then you're sort of describing something that is a pathology, and I think it makes it harder for people to get away with their their um pathological behaviors.
0: Yeah, I I would refrain from using the term psychopath because that seems it has such a wide, profoundly negative sort of connotation to it. Well, narcissism is a cluster of disorders, which are exceedingly common today. Uh, psychopathy, sort of one of them, uh, but you don't, you don't need to bring that one anti-social? in. That, we okay. Can we say Anti- antisocial? Can we say antisocial? You can say antisocial, but I, I would say, the say it's a the it's cluster B
2: personality. It's a cluster, cluster B. B
0: disorder. Oh yeah, that's right. That's the cluster B. And so the the liabilities are projection, narcissistic rage, empathic failure, yeah envy you have to destroy people that have something you don't want not jealous Mm. envy you have to bring them down um and then black white thinking all in all out all good all bad uh and and that's it and listen uh, we're we're all there's been a narcissistic turn in this country we all have qualities of that now uh, and that that's yeah. new. That's a new thing. I would argue that happened in pre-revolutionary France. I would argue it probably happened in mm. you know Russia, or certainly as a result of World War One in Germany. And so, so these these traumatic experiences, you see narcissism come up, and then you see mobs, you see scapegoating, and then you see narcissists taking the helm that manifest all these qualities that we're talking about. And I understand it's not it's not overt out of control narcissism it's the kind of narcissism that allows you to say i care so much about somebody and then harm them profoundly and not really understand that you did that or care about it
2: yeah I, uh, totally agree i and you i agree also we have to be i'm still you can see working out how to talk about it with the right language is but there is such a power when you read the cluster b personality disorders and you and then you see the behaviors of folks involved in these woke movements including the ones that are keeping people sick on the streets it's just you're just struck by what a powerful perfect description it is of many of those behaviors yeah.
0: Yeah, it just it just is. But but again, the one thing that I don't see people doing is what I was just recommending to you for a few minutes ago. I, I look at these things. You know, I did this for th- over thirty years in a hospital setting with more severe versions of these same conditions, and I can tell you, show of they, they show of force. That's what that's what they respond to. It has to be stop. No. And it's gotta be, it's sort of a unified voice of a lot of people. And you're saying 75% of people want this thing corrected. Um, that's a pretty good, it's a pretty good representation. Uh, let's take some calls here. This is uh, Rob, I'll give him a chance to come up here. Um, there we go, he's connecting. Rob, you are on with Michael
4: Uh Wow. Um... Right. So, uh, dis- full disclosure, uh, there's been so much talk, and I have ADHD, latterly diagnosed because of lockdown, that my mind wanders. But what you were, uh, a lot of what you've been talking about is amazing. Um, again, I have addiction issues. Addiction was absolutely compounded by lockdown and what we did to people through that process. Of course. <laughs> Uh, when you're talking about narcissism, predictably, it, and, and when you're, uh, and uh, sorry, I just want to big up as well. Mm-hmm. You're a big voice that I listen to, and I think Michael P was also on a a pandate, a web uh, Twitter space the other night. Listen to him. So it, Twitter is another addiction. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to find yourself in a world where you feel so hurt because you know morally you have the upper hand, but no one else is listening. Uh, and it's you, you can drive yourself to some to some weird spaces. I mean, imagine knowing everything that you think that I think that uh, other you know other great voices that were silenced, that were shut down, that could not get a voice in the mainstream media, and you're going. But listen to these guys. This is part of society. Mm-hmm. We are a society. We should all be together. Everyone mm-hmm. should be heard. And imagine hearing that. And then realizing that actually you've lost your faith in the world, you've lost your faith in the system. You've, whereas previously you did thought so you did not live in a corrupt country. Now you're going, well, stuff is going on. Yeah, but I, it, none of it makes sense. So, um, and and to, and again, to then then there's the narcissistic view of as, as you were just talking about. Am I just a narcissist? Why? Why can no one else
0: see this? Why so, do I have to so, have? So people? okay, Rob, I'm a, I'm going to slow your yeah. roll a little bit because I got something to say, and then I'm sure Michael has something to say to you too. Is like, if you have addiction, you need to deal with that. And, and I will tell you what you're really describing from from the standpoint of I'm not saying everybody has this particular issue, but I'm I know what you're talking about. It, it's something that we can characterize, and I characterize it this way because it helps people to characterize it this way as a spiritual crisis, okay, a, a, a problem of the spirit, as they say in the programs of recovery. You can find solutions to that in 12-step programs, you can find so, with clergy and church and people of like-minded sort of philosophies maybe, but it is with other people uh, and in connection to communion with other people, service to other people uh, building with other people, you know, sort of spending time with other people, get out of your head, get with others that are sort of maybe not like-minded necessarily because you want to kind of see yourself through a new pair of glasses, but some way to restore your faith, restore your hope and restore your, your willingness to sort of be vulnerable with other people. Michael, what do you
2: say? Uh, I have I think you said it perfectly, Drew. <laughs> right, I'm going to just reinforce what you said.
0: It 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 and you and it makes me nervous when you say this is back to Rob that you've now been diagnosed with ADHD. All my patients have ADHD, and if you treat them with a stimulant, you can get into very 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 serious trouble. So be very careful with how you are being treated. I understand how problematic the ADHD ADHD part is, but addicts pretty much all. Have AD ADHD, and one of the dirty little secrets of that sort of wave of uh, diagnosis of, of uh, attention deficit type disorders we have, lo and behold, people that have trauma are at very high risk for ADD ADHD, particularly in childhood and later in life. So sometimes it's addiction, sometimes it's trauma, and sometimes it's a it's a it's a it's a concentration disorder. But you really make sure the core issues aren't sort of undermined by going after the. Um, the concentration issue. Uh, Bring uh, somebody whose name is Dill, Dill Scout. Dill Scout, let's see, bring him or her up here. There we are. Go ahead, and uh, unmute yourself, Dill. Anybody else who's interested in coming, just push the would like to speak button and I'll bring you on up here if you want to ask Michael any questions or myself. Uh, you just, we're of course on Twitter spaces where we take these calls. Dill, you're still, uh, muted there. You have to click on the mic in the lower left-hand corner. To... Oh, you, I,
5: you were in the middle of a sentence when ah. I, um, heard that I was speaking. Quite all right. So I wanted to hear more about the ADHD thing. Thank you.
0: Okay. I'm done speaking. What's up?
5: <laughs> um, I, you said what I said and, uh, I won't do it in public, sir.
0: You said what I said. I won't do it in public. I'm sorry. I'm not quite getting it. So you want to
5: Adderall. Even...
0: Oh, sure. oh, yeah. Adderall, that's all I have to say. Yeah, be careful with that stuff. Be very careful. I'm not... Exactly. I, I, I never say don't do X, you know, because people are very complicated. I have some super complicated polydiagnosed uh, addict patients that get on medicines. I'd rather they not be on, but you're weighing... A lot of stuff out, but particularly early on, when you're just sort of coming to terms with your with your addiction, it um, it can really derail you. So, uh, Josh, it's uh, Michael Schellenberger up here. Josh. Oh,
3: sorry. Um, hey, Dr.
1: Drew. Hey. So uh, I just wanted to say something about the people on the street and why it might be so difficult to uh, help them, and it's because. Sometimes people we think of psychotic actually have something interesting to say, and it might be something about the culture that we live in that might be hard to accept. And yes, they're crazy or shouldn't use that word, but yes, they're they're schizophrenic, say. But the schizophrenia isn't completely gone. In other words, there's there's stuff, there's truth in it. And the truth is a commentary on the way all of us are living and the lives that we like. I mean, but
0: and, Josh, you're you're making a gross generalization. I mean, some some schizophrenics are literally they make no sense. Like literally, the words don't connect. They're so psychotic. Uh, and so I well, I, so you know, I
1: would use you know I would use the analogy of a dream. I mean, we go to bed at dream at night. We have crazy dreams. We don't know what they mean. Mm-hmm. That's how it is for them but sometimes there is truth in, in it. There is, if it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, yeah. so, and, and that is, that can be scary to us no, and it can be no, very zero, threatening to us.
0: No, absolutely not. But go ahead, uh, Caleb. I mean, uh, Michael, I mean, why would that, is that why they're making the crazy policies they make? Cause they're afraid of listening to schizophrenics?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure if Josh was talking about the people on the street or the politicians <laughs> Maybe that's it all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly I agree. I mean, the people on the street, when they're in psychotic episodes, yeah, it's like listening to somebody um describing their dreams. It's often very disjointed. You know, there's a lot of um, you know, talk of what's in the news, aliens, but you know, uh, when they're in because the, UFOs are in the news, but my aunt, you know, thought that the president was communicating to her through the television set. Um, or that she had some secret relationship with famous celebrities. I often see, and I often hear a lot of, you know, it's an interesting subject. I often hear a lot of sadness and um, expressed in those psychotic um, episodes and oh, also sure. some grandeur too, you know, where people are alive. Yes. People tell so, me, so, I've worked out string yeah. theory or aliens are talking to me. Yeah.
0: But the, But the grandiosity becomes defensive. That's the. And and I, I I personally you know we each have our own sort of cross to bear with our own personalities and we work with certain kinds of like borderlines and narcissists I work great with them I really like working with them schizophrenics I do not specifically because of the grandiosity A- and then the paranoia too I don't I don't like things that can't be reasoned with and so paranoia is fixed and the grandiosity is pushes you away you know it's like I don't need you because I'm I've got the solution to the world I've got I've got all the answers and it's like oh. It's very hard to to be around that. Uh, um yes. let's we, we've got a bunch of questions coming in. So let me um this
3: is uh gosh darn it. This looks like Drew also. <laughs> Drew wants to come in. Uh do you unmute yourself there, Drew M? looking at other. And by the way, you know, uh before we get drew up here,
0: you know, nar- narcissism is not the sole domain of uh people on the left or the wokes. I mean, if you're <laughs> you know, if you're not calling Donald Trump a narcissist, you're you're missing an opportunity to point one out. Uh, you know what I mean? There's plenty of narcissists on and and I would argue that because there's been such a narcissistic turn in our in our character structure we all have this stuff as we said earlier and that has something to do with why we're responding to this why we're farming mobs why we're scapegoating we have to really check ourselves you know you know so i that's the other thing i worry about when you point it out in this one group you it's all over the place and it's it's a shared thing that we have to really pay attention to uh yeah and it's it's, it's, what's odd to me agree yeah, and I I didn't know how narcissists trigger one another so much. That that's kind of a, a new finding for me. And I, I've seen how wow people get triggered by woo they they can't get over it. You know, one narcissist triggered by another. It's just yowie. Uh, Drew M, I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna put sense. you down if yeah I'm gonna put you back in the uh, main thing here because you did not seem to come to the microphone, and I will take uh, dopaminergic in here. Um just hap- we happen to have been speaking about dopaminergic systems in the medial forebrain bundle. Yes, what's up? Whoop. Hey Caleb, what happens just... when the mic goes back on mute? Is that, is that our end? It's,
3: no, it's on their end. It's they they press the button, but they probably pressed it too quickly, so then it's like a double tap. So it's yeah, Twitter oh, just I needs see. to improve their
0: so they're trying to be right. so
3: Merchick, good. You need we... to
2: hit the mute button again. Yeah, you?
3: <laughs> they're trying. No, I've, there I've, there
2: there
5: you yeah, are. I know. I, I'm, not, I'm not muted. It's just that there's a delay. I'm in, I'm in Asia. So there's a delay in Twitter. Oh, once you make yeah. a request. There once you, you make go. A request, what happens is you get approved on our side and ah. then there is a delay be- before the mic gets activated
0: so thank you, you know. thank you for that explanation i knew there was something cuz it didn't it didn't make yeah. sense that people weren't no uh, it's them, an
5: automation uh, it's an automation on twitter side ah. clearly what's going on there? so uh, my 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 question was uh, in relation to um this sort of behavior but at corporate level i've mm. i've listened to uh, dr anti malhotra uh, talking about psychopathy Uh, or psychopathic um, corporations. And my question was, uh, isn't it the case that once you have a group of people that self-select with certain traits and then they tend to hire people who function well with them uh, within corporation, and then we'll just take pharma because I think that's the one that we have right in front of us is an exemplar of or a counter exemplar of what what corporations should uh, keep themselves in checks or not. What happens if then over time an institution self-select for people with this kind of traits, even if they're kind of functional uh, people?
0: Well, well let me let me uh, reframe that and 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 sort of pile on what you're saying. What if institutions and organizations organize themselves in such a way as to behave as though, the entire group's uh general character structure is of a narcissistic or psychopathic nature right you don't all have to be narcissists for that to happen but you do have to be able to follow a narcissist for that to happen and so one of the things that sociopaths and narcissists do is collect people around them to do their stuff and as we just mentioned other narcissists don't, it doesn't usually work. They trigger each other. They fight with each other. So it, there's, you know, there's certain fittedness. You know, the narcissists get the codependence around them that 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 had narcissistic parents themselves, and so they're sort of what uh, Dr. James Mastern used to call they call them like backdoor narcissists. Like the narcissist system is all suppressed, and you subjugate yourself to the other person, and that system then becomes highly narcissistic. But yeah, that definitely happens in systems. I'm certainly no expert in this. Michael, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, you know, no, I mean I was thinking um also about how um I think to your point, you know, there is this concept of healthy narcissism, which is probably worth mentioning mm-hmm. that um well, for if you sure. don't have healthy narcissism, then you're going in the other direction of um of some amount of, of self hatred. And I think even the, even there's a book or, out, I love recently called the wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or too fearful, maybe too erotic. I mean, there's also yeah. Yeah. the, there's a good book called the wisdom of psychopaths, which argues that hmm. all of these cluster B disorders are spectrums and that these, um, there's like really high performing psychopaths. You know, you mentioned politicians are a famous example, surgeons are another example. I mean, Hollywood, obviously, is a festival of narcissism and and you wouldn't expect it to be any different. I do think though that um that you can relativize it, um but I do think it's it's there is uh, you know there is something increasing in the culture, but I think that one of the one of the ways you can respond to it is that you know recognition or attention are are things that people that earn them really deserve so it seems like it's reintroducing the idea that that attention positive attention recognition are things that that people should get when they earn them and we just need to create a culture that reinforces the sense that you don't get and this is really obviously the whole coddling phenomenon you don't get that narcissistic supply unless you've earned it which is going to mean that you're going to get it a lot less than people are going to are going to find ways to get it if it's if it's pathological
0: and what you were describing there is what we call a pro-social psychopath pro-social psychopaths although they don't appreciate that you have feelings can actually do a lot of good they can be they can be moral philosophers to the they they have a a compass that's literally outside of themselves we have moral intuitions they don't have moral intuitions to them it's like a scale and they just weigh it out and they act accordingly uh you know you'd give them you give somebody a psychopath the uh trolley experiment and and they'll push their children off the bridge to stop the trolley because it's just it's just a math equation it's just math yeah there's no moral intuition involved and and also no feelings involved but um but i want to point out as i i try to do every time we have conversations about narcissism and borderline things like that these are not these are terms that unfortunately get used purely pejoratively. And the reality is much to your book about the wisdom of psychopathy or psychopaths, these things have evolved over time and serve a function. And that function has some liabilities and some assets, even alcoholism, Alco- the alcoholic, the genetic setup for alcoholism. Let me sh- tell you, those are people you want to go into battle with. Believe me, they will survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why that gene keeps going same thing with an extreme narcissist i want that guy flying my plane particularly if if, if i'm in a a fighter pilot situation these people are the ones that are designed for those kinds of situations and they evolve as a result they stay alive they continue to push Mm -hmm. forward it's it's better for the species that we have these people but it has liabilities and those we have to be very very clear and honest about those liabilities and manage them and understand how to manage them we we've it's you know we've gone too far it's these these swings that we get into that are the problem like look i michael i was aware of this i've said this many many times that the um I watched the narcissistic turn. I was working in a psychiatric hospital in the early 80s. And when I got there, everyone gets a diagnostic sheet when they come in and there's something called axis two. And I used to see all different axis two disorders. Everybody had a different one. By 1989, 88, everybody had cluster B. At least it seemed like it was all cluster B coming in. And by the 90s, it was only cluster B. And it was three, borderline, narcissist, psychopath or, or a sociopath. That was it. And from then on, that's all we saw in the psych hospital uh, when there was a, a, a major access to diagnosis. And so I knew it. I knew it was happening. I saw it happening. I, I you know used to develop management styles for it and what we do with it. And, what we, and Trauma was the underlying thing. All these people had childhood trauma. Abuse, neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse. It's, it's there. Addiction in the home, violence in the home. We, we went through a pandemic of that stuff and we were in massive denial. And it affects how we develop and how our personalities are put together, so there's no doubt that this has been happening. And as a result, now we have to kind of deal with that. We have to be realistic about how that affects us and you know who we are and and when we go excessively one way. As in response to that cluster B sort of uh, um, wind, I was seeing, I also noticed that in the courtrooms, in the courts in the 80s and 90s, borderline. Um, the borderline patients just took over the courtrooms. They were the m- remember all the so-called frivolous lawsuits in the eighties and nineties. Remember that, mm. and the attorneys didn't realize what they were dealing with, and they had to actually get educated about borderline disorders and about narcissists mm. and, and cognitive distortions and this stuff. And it it took about twenty years, but that that complete takeover stopped. The frivolous lawsuits, slaps and things like that were developed to put put people, you know, so they couldn't just use the court to act out their psychopathology. Unfortunately, now the political system is where people act out their psychopathology. And we have to come up with some solutions for that as well. And it's people like you that I'm looking to to sort of uh, come up with some solutions. I, I'm not sure what it, what it is. Um, in In my profession they what they do is they develop a sort of a a religious attitude about something and become evangelical about certain things yes opiate prescribing for instance was the last time and it's not until there is criminal action that doctors change direction i don't know what it is for politicians necessarily. i guess voted out i guess all we can really do
2: yeah well yeah i mean um and we're and definitely some things are happening i mean um San Francisco has a moderate on the Board of Supervisors. LA elected a progressive, Um, you know, so it's definitely, we're definitely, things are happening. I I think that they're not happening as decisively as we would like to see. And you're right about the medical profession though. I mean, it's kind of amazing how much of this bad stuff comes from doctors and nurses who are sort of abusing their power. We see them, we see a lot of credentialing Online for doctors and nurses to say things that are just um, pretty outrageous to basically yep. give up on people's addictions, and you know a significant yep. amount of the so-called harm reduction movement came out of the HIV/AIDS movement. And Correct. but addicts are a totally different problem than people with HIV/AIDS. So you saw this mental model being like, "Well, these people are victims," and and that actually can be quite. Uh, you know, you know, when I, I, had, addicts- I had an HIV,
0: I had an HIV AIDS doctor who's an advocate and I'm not against replacement therapies. I, they can, they're, util, they're, they're very useful. It's just the strict and universal application of any treatment for a disease as complex as addiction is what I take issue with. And this one AIDS doctor told me there's no such thing as recovery from opiate addiction. It doesn't exist in nature. And I thought, um, I could introduce you to a thousand people that are thriving today because of their recovery from opiates, Tom Wolf, your buddy, Tom Wolf. I mean, there's a good example of it right there. Right?
2: Yeah. Well, the pessimism it feels like it's in service of a kind of desire to control. And I think ba- the picture I kind of have is of the Kathy Bates character in the movie misery, the Stephen King, uh, based on the Stephen King novel or a little bit, I, I don't, I don't wanna go this far, but you get a little bit Munkhausen syndrome by proxy. It's kind of like, we're gonna take care of you. And in that sort of, yes. but not in a way of actual uh, of it's, it's a, there's a unhealthy, uh, you know, uh, is almost like a violation of, is an over-involvement in the sick person rather than a, a healthier distancing, like the kind you're describing, which is to say, hey, no, wait a second. We're going to say no to this kind of crazy, you know, line of thinking and we're going to interrupt it and we're going to talk back to it. No, it's a lot of this kind of baby talk, enabling, treating addicts like they're children, but actually children, like spoiled children. You know, oh, you want to camp here on the sidewalk and smoke fentanyl and meth all day and you don't want any consequences. Oh, what's that? You want things brought to you. I mean, this was the whole trend among service workers was, well, the people on the streets, they just say that they want us to just bring them things. They, they don't want to have to get out of their tents. I mean, this is, I mean, that's just insane, right? This thing of, of we're going to just go and look. I mean, you might uh, as well hook them up, like turn them into even, vegetables. Even, right.
0: I, I am in favor of needle exchange programs, not needle giveaway programs. So you, you're not even yes. allowed to ask an addict to bring a needle back to exchange it for a clear, not allowed to ask for that. You just must distribute. And, and right. that's not, you have to ask, so they, they need that. You know, the other thing yes. I'm not against, um, I'm not at events, shooting galleries and things like that, or people want to drink or shoot heroin or be given heroin, whatever it is. So long as there are professionals, there using motivational enhancement techniques to get those right. people enrolled in some sort of process. Otherwise yeah. it will progress and they will die that's the you have to understand that progression but you know who are we to say michael i mean we're just you know here trying to help and uh, we're bad guys we want to incarcerate and i am not even by, by the way i'm not even in favor of uh mandated treatment i i be- believe i know how to do it in such a way that you don't have to do that you don't have to do that there are techniques there's ways but you got to do it you have to do it and you have to ask them to do something you ask them to do nothing and you get nothing. You get death. You get destruction. You get demise. And it's kind of an interesting thing that people don't seem to—denial about human nature, denial about illnesses. It's really weird. It's so crazy to me.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, really, denial of human nature is a big part of what totalitarian regimes are about and about trying to remake human nature. You know, I was just going to say, too, I think that— We've left out of the conversation here is that the residents of cities also have rights, and they have the right to walk down the, se- the sidewalk safely. They have a right for their children not to be exposed to such self destructive behaviors. And I think it's that inter- intersection between asserting the rights of citizens and cities that allows for us to get the folks on the street that the help that they need.
0: Michael, if, if I had met you like eight years or 10 years ago, what was your political persuasion? What was your thinking? And again, take me a little bit, we'll wrap up back at this spot again, a little bit through how it changed, just so other you can model that for other people.
2: You know, maybe the biggest is, you know, particularly on this issue was really getting out what of even the this idea issue? that just, there were.
0: Just your, your political, your political orientation. How did it shift? How did you go from, I would say you were probably ideological. You probably had some of these things. How, how did you shift out of it? Why, why did that happen?
2: I mean, the biggest issue was nuclear power, because once you realize that nuclear power is good rather than bad, then it's such a radical shift of mentality. And that really brought me on the search to understand why had a certain group of people misled so many other people about this technology. And particularly why was there sort of an apocalyptic, why is there such a, a kind of religious quality to so much progressive, um, ideology, including climate alarmism. And that then, I think then kind of was, it was easier to, it took me 20 years really to get over that sort of apocalyptic environmentalism. And then afterwards, I think it was much easier to see that progressives were doing something similar, not the same exactly, but something similar on these issues of crime, drugs, and homelessness. And that it really was about kind of mapping a religious view onto things. So, you know, some of it's definitely getting older, some of it's, uh, you know, getting you know, more mature and doing your own personal work. You know, speaking of psychology and not, um, not needing particular psychological needs to get met by one's ideology and getting one's psychological and uh, life needs met through, you know, healthier uh, means and allowing for a more objective a view of these issues so it's um Did, there's a lot to it obviously because it's been i'm now it's been i've been political politically active for you know over 25 uh years and so it's been a, a slow process and a, a lot of little steps was in there that, was in that process. was there a moment of
0: sort of where things rushed in we are like oh my god how am i gonna i'm gonna lose my friendships i'm gonna the community is going to judge me How what was there like a moment where it's like oh my god
2: Oh, for sure. I definitely on nuclear and then I think more broadly on climate and sort of being like, oh, oh, it's it's really a lot more like the fears of overpopulation. It's not to say that there weren't, you know, because there were some problems with too many people and not enough food. Um, But the ways in which those issues became so exaggerated and manipulated that it really was like, oh, gosh, you know, Because climate, I would say climate, race, and sort of maybe trans issues now are kind of the formal catechism of liberals. And if you express any dissent from a pretty dogmatic view on those three issues, then you're a heretic who in some ways is asking to be scapegoated. And so you realize you're going to be scapegoated if you express these issues publicly. And I think that's a a moment where you have to decide that you think expressing your tr- the truth is more important than uh maintaining your status on the inside of of that community
0: that's hard that's uh it's uh, i i've said this before it it takes courage and it wasn't a word i was using 2 3 years ago but uh it's on the tip of my tongue courage and and, and freedom yeah. are words that i i i've just sort of uh not worried about my whole life uh, and now all of a sudden yes. they have great great uh value and um i thank you for having the courage to speak up and write these great books the books are terrific uh again you and, you and your thinking you. is it's always so clear and reassuring to me when you start saying that you're going in a certain direction and you, you would see the you know see how you're going to get get things to move so uh, i hope that the new group does so. People can find Michael at Schellenberger.org. Again, San Francisco, San Francisco, and apocalypse number of the books. And again, the new website, the North American
2: North America recovers dot org. There, there it is. It. North America great. recovers. Yeah. Right.
0: Perfect. All right, Michael. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you as always and great to see you too. We'll have to go downtown and see, you know, if Karen Basses have any any progress or any impact on some of this stuff. It it doesn't seems like little areas are kind of cleaning up, but it's not, those people are just going to die in those hotels they're putting them in, unfortunately. But, you know, talk to you soon, my friend. Good to
2: see you too, Drew. Look forward to reconnecting in person. Take care.
0: Great. Great. And for the rest of you, we have, uh, you saw Caleb was throwing up there, some of the upcoming guests. We've got a lot of very interesting things coming. Again, Senator Ron Johnson in here tomorrow wants to chronicle really the, the... The pandemic and how he was standing up against it all the way along. Uh, We have Naomi Wolf on Thursday, and I owe her a tremendous uh, apology. Molly Kingsley is in Great Britain, uh, spearheading a lot of the action against... what's happening with children, let's say. Dave Rubin on Monday, those shows are early. February 10th is 11, February 13th is 12 o'clock. Dr. Jessica Rose in here on February 15th and she's got a lot of information as well as Brooke Jackson. Uh, The 15th, um, I'll be coming to you from Austin and the 22nd from uh, New York City, but uh, Kelly will be in her usual position and hopefully won't have any technical problems. Caleb, any thoughts before I
3: wrap this thing up? No, it's always great to hear from him. That's I I've been following him since I saw him from Michael. Uh, posted on your Twitter. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I just yeah. I wish someone would step in and just realize the, the mm. it doesn't seem like these activists have ever met an actual homeless person. It's just people that need help. You can't just give you can't yeah. give housing to a child and yeah. expect them to go and take off and and thrive. You need somebody <laughs> to give them some sort of a foundation and you can't really start with a foundation if you have so if you're just wrapped up in your addiction that you don't even know where you are, like it's just, it's not compassion treating for them to brain just throw disorders them into a situation.
0: Treating brain disorders any differently than we treat any other organ system illness is immoral. Strictly speaking, it is categorically immoral. And why we're the only country on earth that feels that's a desirable position. I, I understand what you think you're doing but you're not you're hurting people and just look at the death toll it's just going up every year it's just getting worse and worse and it's going to get a lot worse suddenly pretty soon
3: it was so upsetting all to right, me well, thank whenever you. it was so upsetting to me whenever all of these activists push back when you were trying to step in and yeah. help for free you were trying to help yep. with the situation yep. you know exactly yeah. what to do in this and they fought against you do. just so viciously and i thought no, they are not interested no in a solution involved. They aren't interested in no. solving it. They're not bringing no. in the professionals. No. They just want to keep talking about it.
0: Right. It, it was so frustrating. I, uh, it, oh. Or there's there's a lot of people that make a lot of money off this. Uh, there's a huge That's the only explanation I can think money, of. Keeping it the way it is. Oh, absolutely. All right, everybody. Again, uh, tomorrow, Senator Ron Johnson with Kelly Victor. That should be a very interesting show. We appreciate you being here. Thank you, guys, all you guys over on Twitter Spaces and your great calls. And we will see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific time. 8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com slash help.